This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, new punishments for the Melbourne Victory Football Club. It'll be under a cloud for years now after its fans' violent pitch invasion. Also, are more pen and paper exams on the way for university students? New artificial intelligence tools prompt a rethink on academic cheating. It's remarkably effective. I mean, I was quite impressed with its ability to write an essay or answer pretty much any question you might have. And some Fitzroy Crossing residents return to their sodden homes, facing health risks amid the devastation. A young adult female got bitten by a king brand yesterday and flown to Broome, you know? So we, we have been warning each other, be safe about the COVID, about mosquitoes, about snakes... Thanks for your company. Soccer club Melbourne Victory has been hit with further penalties over last month's violent pitch invasion that left the opposing team's goalkeeper bloodied and concussed. The club's been fined more than half a million dollars but won't be docked any points this season. Instead, supporters have been warned any further instances of serious misconduct will result in a 10-point deduction for the team. So is it enough to keep fans and players safe in the future? Angus Randall reports. We are going to have the referee has called for both sets of players to leave the field of play. And this is entirely, entirely unacceptable. In December, Melbourne Victory fans angry over a decision by the A-League to sell the grand final hosting rights to Sydney stormed the pitch. The scenes at the Melbourne derby were the worst witnessed in Australian football during the A-League era. We cannot let this happen again in our game. We believe that a strong sanction, both financial and also sporting, is warranted and justified in these circumstances. Football Australia has now handed down its punishment to the club. James Johnson is Football Australia's chief executive. There is a total of 550,000 Australian dollars in total financial uh, sanctions to the club and this comprises 450,000 Australian dollars in fines and damages and a further 100,000 in lost revenue. There had been bubbling anger among football fans in the days before the incident over the decision to give Sydney the grand final hosting rights for the next three years. Usually it goes to the highest-ranked club. But in Melbourne, the protests turned into something far more violent. One victory fan threw a metal bucket of sand at Melbourne City goalkeeper Tom Glover's head. The keeper left the field with a concussion and a bloodied head. The game was abandoned. It will now be replayed in April. The match will be replayed from the 22nd minute and it will start with the scoreline being 1-0 to Melbourne City. Melbourne victory was punished in the aftermath of the incident with supporters banned from attending most matches. In addition, 17 pitch invaders were banned from attending football, including three life bans. But Melbourne victory has avoided losing competition points. It currently sits second from last on the ladder. Football Australia's James Johnson says a 10-point penalty suspended over the next three years will be a far more effective deterrent. Deducting points was considered. Where we decided is we went back to what ultimately is important and that's the integrity of our competitions 
And we felt that if we were to uh, implement a point deduction now, it wasn't the most effective way of deterring the fans that would attend future matches from stopping this kind of behaviour. Football analyst and former Socceroo Bruce Jitte was at the ground when fans stormed the pitch. It was absolutely surreal to see what was unfolding in front of our our eyes was was crazy. I couldn't believe it. He hopes today's penalties will prevent such violence ever happening again. Look, those punishments are pretty severe. I think uh, they're fitting in the sense that it was a moment that, you know, in the A-League era certainly never been seen before and, you know, commensurate punishments needed to be handed down. I think Football Australia has landed that, you know, puts the onus on those the APL clubs to ensure that those people don't infiltrate the, the active supporters who bring so much to the game. Melbourne Victory has seven business days to appeal against the decision. Angus Randall reporting. Well, last month we brought you the story of a major leap forward in artificial intelligence linguistic software and predictions it could reshape the world we live in. Well, it appears to be starting. Students at Australia's biggest universities have been told there'll be more pen and paper exams this year to ensure the work handed in hasn't been generated by a computer. But while AI may make the job of marking students more difficult, those working in the field say the opportunities the technology provides also need to be embraced. Flint Duxfield reports. The idea of getting a computer to write an essay might seem like the stuff of science fiction, but over the past few months, it's fast become a reality. In November, the world's first publicly accessible AI text generator was launched by Elon Musk's research firm OpenAI, and academics say the results are impressive. It's remarkably effective. I mean, I was quite impressed with its ability to write an essay or answer um, pretty much any question you might have. Toby Walsh is a professor of artificial intelligence at UNSW. He sees the introduction of AI having a profound effect for the university sector. I think it will be significant. I think it's as significant as the introduction of the calculator, which changed how we teach mathematics. I remember being taught log tables. That was all totally useless. And I do think that perhaps we're going to look backwards in 10 years' time and see that how we teach and what we teach and how we measure what we've taught is going to be quite different. But as AI becomes more advanced and mainstream, it's exactly that question of how universities can ensure it isn't being used by students to cheat that's preoccupying the tertiary sector. The group of eight leading universities in Australia now says it will be developing new strategies to combat the use of AI this academic year, including a return to more pen and paper tests. One of those is the University of Adelaide, where Deputy Vice-Chancellor Professor Jenny Shaw says the university has already increased the amount of in-person supervised exams. It is a really effective way. Um, The issue is that examinations are not the only form of assessment. We do a lot of fieldwork and lab-based assessments. Um, Anything that's hands-on is always pretty reliable. For rather, an oral exam, a, a Viva exam, can be very effective. Professor Shaw says universities are also pursuing technological solutions through anti-plagiarism software, which universities already use. That anti-plagiarism software is also starting to pick up the use of artificial intelligence because it's designed to pick it up whether it's a person doing it or whether it's any other kind of program. But AI experts are sceptical of detection software being the solution to the AI challenge. Philip Dawson is the co-director of the Centre for Assessment and Digital Learning at Deakin University. 
There's a few uh, people online that have put up different sort of chat GPT detectors. On the surface, they seem pretty good. But if you do things like go back to the AI and say, write it in a more personalised way, then it seems to sail through these sort of detectors. For Professor Dawson, the question is not how to stop AI being used, but how to ensure it's being used fairly and openly. We currently don't have really good ways for students to say, this is what I did and this is what the AI did. And we need to sort of have a conversation around that. How do you attribute what uh, a computer has done for you? The University of Adelaide's Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Professor Jenny Shaw, agrees removing AI from the classrooms should not be the solution. You can't say to staff or to students, don't use artificial intelligence. We all do. I would not go back to using a a Melways or UBD now that I have Google Maps and Siri on my phone, for instance. So there are all sorts of ways in which we would use artificial intelligence in completely legitimate ways. But I think it's also explaining to them that like the concept of group work, it's okay in certain circumstances and it's not okay in others. While there may be many challenges with ensuring artificial intelligence isn't misused, UNSW's Professor Toby Walsh believes the technology will also come with significant benefits for staff and students. We can get these tools to critique an essay. We can get these tools, if we wanted to, to even grade an essay. We can give these tools to students and then we can say, well, you can get some feedback as you're preparing your essay as to whether the essay is good enough and to what grade your essay might get. And that's something that we as, as teachers teachers uh, wouldn't have the time, patience uh, to be able to do. So we can offer much more personalised feedback to students using these tools. That's UNSW's Professor of Artificial Intelligence, Toby Walsh, ending that report from Flint Duxfield. The Albanese government has detailed changes to one of the measures key to ensuring carbon emissions are cut in line with Australia's climate targets. More than 200 of the biggest industrial emitters will have to slash their emissions by an average of almost 5% each year to 2030 as the so-called safeguard mechanism is ratcheted up. Climate groups say the reforms still make too many concessions and rely too heavily on offsets. John Daly reporting. Cutting the emissions of Australia's biggest polluters, accounting for almost a third of the nation's emissions, is key to reaching the 2030 and 2050 emissions reduction targets. These massive industrial emitters are regulated by what's called the safeguard mechanism. Inevitably, when you announce a big climate policy, almost inevitably, half the people will say it doesn't go far enough and half will say it goes too far. That's fine. We work it through carefully and methodically and we get it right. That's Energy and Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen explaining the proposed design of this new safeguard mechanism. Each year, the emissions limits on Australia's biggest polluters will be tightened by 4.9%, so that by 2030, heavy industrial emissions would have fallen by almost 30%. That is the equivalent of two-thirds of the emissions from every car in Australia being taken out of our emissions between now and 2030. Now, the government's had to think carefully about how to set emissions limits on big industrial facilities without making them unviable. Old facilities will get some leniency, while new facilities will have their emissions limits set on what's deemed international best practice. Grattan Institute Energy and Climate Change Deputy Program Director Alison Reeve says defining world's best practice is tricky. Now, that requires someone to determine what international best practice is, and that is not an easy question to answer. It's important to get this right because when these new facilities get built, 
you're locking in the pattern of energy use and emissions for a very long time. The federal government has also proposed tailored treatment for what's called emissions-intensive trade-exposed facilities. These facilities, like an exporting coal mine, for example, will be able to get reduced emissions reductions for three years. Alison Reeve says the challenge will be making sure others don't have to pick up the slack for emissions-intensive industries. For every business that you let off the hook, someone else has it has to do more because you have a fixed emissions budget. So the trick here will be making sure that that slow decline rate doesn't stop those businesses who are subject to it from reducing their emissions over time, so making sure they are still exposed to a price signal. Big emitters that exceed their limits face penalties, or they can use credits to account for the extra emissions. The proposed safeguard mechanism will establish so-called safeguard mechanism credits, letting lower polluting facilities sell their abated carbon to other heavier polluters. Climate Council Head of Advocacy Jen Rayner says the unlimited use of carbon credits and offsets sends industry the wrong message. This is just going to incentivise Australia's heavy industry to engage in more tricky carbon accounting to cover up pollution as usual, rather than actually investing in genuine transformation. The government's proposed changes are out for public consultation until late February. It plans to implement the new safeguard mechanism by July 1 this year. John Daly reporting there. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, the first satellite mission launch from Western Europe ends in failure. But Space Watchers say it's only a setback. It is rocket science and it's challenging. And so that means that there is insurance in place. And while this is a bit of a, let's say it's a bad thing for the companies involved, it's not the end of the world. They'll get the funds to rebuild them and launch them again at a future date. Residents in WA's flood-ravaged community of Fitzroy Crossing say they're struggling to come to terms with the devastation in their community. Close to 100 homes in the small community have been damaged and the only highway in and out is out of action. On top of that, it appears COVID-19 is now spreading through some overcrowded homes. Here's Oliver Gordon. Fitzroy Crossing resident Jasmine Bedford says many in her community are struggling. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Devastation. I'm devastated. Like everyone here is walking around with heavy hearts. Floodwaters have started receding, making their way to the coast. They've left behind more than a metre of silt and mud in some homes. Jasmine Bedford says some residents have started inspecting the damage. Some have, some haven't, because yeah, it's due to safety. They've been told just to hold off until the I don't know recovery team they call. I think there's, they're going around assessing the damages and giving the green tick to say that they're allowed to go back yet or not. Many of the unaffected dwellings of Fitzroy Crossing are now overcrowded, temporarily housing evacuees from nearby communities. Jasmine Bedford says she's concerned about a rise in COVID cases. The numbers are increasing as we speak, so we've been telling everybody to be cautious if they're feeling unwell, go to the hospital. It's not just disease. Many animals, including snakes, have been forced into town. A young girl, young adult female got bitten by a King Brown yesterday and flown to Broome. Fellow resident Natalie Davey has been working hard to resume the town's local broadcasting service, Wongi Radio. Personally, you know, I've hit walls all the way through this process and um, we all will be and it's a long, long process. So one of the things that can help with it is having the right information 
at the right time. Many of the displaced people from the Fitzroy Valley have been flown 200 kilometres north to Derby, where an evacuation centre has been set up. Jeff Hardaway is the president of the Shire of Derby West Kimberley. We're trying really, really hard to make sure that everybody uh, are happy and comfortable. And when do you expect that the 178 people in that evacuation centre will be able to get back to their uh, communities, which I understand are the communities around the Fitzroy Valley? That's a hard question, but um, it just depends on when the water goes down and also on uh, the decision that DFES makes. As attention turns to the mammoth task of rebuilding, Master Builders WA Executive Director John Jalavis has moved to stamp out any expectations of a speedy process. The labour challenges at the moment with the current construction and, and also mining boom that we're experiencing, it, it can be quite difficult to access those skilled trades um, and the labour to, to complete this work. He hopes authorities writing the rebuild contracts include appropriate incentives so the job can get started as soon as possible. I think the incentives are pro- providing accommodation um, and and ensuring that the that the um, the other wages and incentives that are that are there for those those trades working up there uh, allows them to to um, I guess to be covered in in going to those communities and um, and assisting with those rebuilds. So I think the government has to have to to step in as best they can to um, to support those those workers and support those businesses um, that are, are I guess leaving their leaving their work in in either Perth or other metropolitan other metropolitan and regional areas to to assist with that process. That's WA Master Builders Executive Director John Jalavis ending Oliver Gordon's report. They're the size of your pinky fingernail with enough venom to kill or at least cause excruciating pain and in less than a fortnight five children have been flown to hospital off Gari Fraser Island on Queensland's southeastern coast with suspected Irukandji jellyfish stings. Now, some experts are calling for more research to determine whether climate change is pushing them further south. Rachel Hayter reports. Veteran Cairns lifeguard John Muzz Murray has lost count of the number of Irukandji victims he's treated in his two decades patrolling North Queensland beaches. A lot of people say it's like having um, lower back pain, but it's not like getting out of bed lower back pain. It's more closely related to saying have like a cricket bat slammed into your lower back over and over and over. The tiny stinger's venom spreads throughout the body, sparking severe headache, nausea and vomiting. Probably the worst one of all is like an impending feeling of doom, like you're going to die because it just feels really anxious. Within a couple more minutes, the full syndrome onset, boom, you know, really hard. Difficulty breathing, profuse drenching, sweating, cramps and spasms in the limbs and behind the eyes and through the body and all that. Only two people are known to have ever died of the stings in Australia. But experts say the true number is likely much higher. Dr Lisa Gershwin is Director of Australian Marine Stinger Advisory Services. Right now we, you know, jokingly say, tis the season to be jelly, you know. Sorry, that's what they say. That's what they say. Within the last fortnight, five young children have been stung by Irukandji jellyfish while swimming off Gari, Fraser Island, on Queensland's southeastern coast. Thank God it's easier on kids. But easier doesn't mean they don't have pain and vomiting and a feeling of impending doom, breathlessness, some of these things. But we don't tend to see 
the syndrome lasting as long in children. About 300,000 people visit the island annually. And Fraser Coast Tourism and Events Chief Executive Martin Simon says the recent spate of stings reflects the influx of tourists this summer holiday season. They're very small numbers of stings versus the number of people that are, that are on the island. Gary's 120 kilometres north to south, so it's, they're near creeks on the western western part of the island, very remote. Irukandji are usually found in tropical waters of coral reefs or deep oceans near reefs across northern Australia. But recent gari stings have some experts asking whether Irukandji jellyfish are moving south due to climate change. And that's because the East Australian current, which is the really strong dominant current that's was made famous in, in Finding Nemo, that's actually accelerating. And so that's actually bringing a lot of tropical species into subtropical regions. Griffith University professor Kylie Pitt says more research is needed into the spread of the jellyfish. That's an absolute imperative. We actually really don't know much about what their distribution is and whether or not that's changing. Researching Irukandji's distribution is difficult because where exactly they spend part of their life as a polyp remains a mystery. Professor Pitt and her team are working with James Cook University to develop a new method of sampling Irukandjis using environmental DNA. As the Irukandjis swim through the water, they're actually shedding mucus and, and cells. And we can actually tell whether or not Irukandji have been in the area now by taking a water sample. As for avoiding stings from the transparent jellyfish, wear a stinger suit and heed Irukandji warning signs. John Musmurray says if you suspect you've been stung, your local lifeguard is always there to help. Douse the area liberally with vinegar for about 20 to 30 seconds. Flooding the sting with vinegar stops the stinging cells from firing and can reduce symptoms of Irukandji syndrome. Rachel Hayter reporting. Decades after the globe united in an attempt to save the Earth's ozone layer, experts say recovery is on track. A United Nations-backed report confirming the phase-out of ozone-depleting chemicals has been successful, and the ozone hole over Antarctica could be completely mended in just over 40 years. Alexandra Humphreys reports. It's been more than 35 years since nations universally committed to the Montreal Protocol, a landmark environmental agreement restricting the use of ozone-depleting chemicals used in refrigerants and aerosols. Now, in the latest assessment done every four years, there's good news. It was delivered by Stéphane Dejarek, spokesperson for the Secretary-General of the United Nations. In a new report, a UN-backed scientific panel confirmed that the phase-out of nearly 99% of banned ozone-depleting substances has succeeded in safeguarding the ozone layer, leading to a notable recovery of the ozone layer in the upper stratosphere and decreased human exposure to harmful ultraviolet rays. While there is progress, it's slow. Globally, the ozone layer is expected to get back to pre-1980 levels by 2040. It'll be 2045 for the Arctic. And in Antarctica, the hole that opens up every spring could be gone by 2066. Professor Julie Arblaster is from Monash University and is a member of the committee behind the latest report. Yeah, well, this report is really good news. It's not fully recovered yet, uh, but it is starting to thicken. It's starting to get back towards those 1980 levels. The ozone layer protects the planet from harmful ultraviolet radiation. 
Chlorofluorocarbons, known as CFCs, were found to be destroying the ozone layer in the 70s. The Montreal Protocol was agreed to in 1987. Uh, and so banning them, um, which happened under the Montreal Protocol in the late 1980s, uh, has been really effective and um, most of those CFCs are now controlled uh, and, and we're really seeing them decline in the atmosphere. She says it shows countries can work together to protect the environment. And we really um, can take some lessons from this uh, in terms of trying to mitigate climate change. Terry Slevin is Chief Executive of the Public Health Association of Australia. He says despite what many may think, ozone depletion hasn't made a big difference to Australia's skin cancer rates. There are a whole range of reasons why people in Australia are at high risk of skin cancer, UV reaching the ground in the, in the southern hemisphere to a greater extent of the northern hemisphere at equivalent times of the summer, uh, the tilt of the earth, uh, uh, the fact that we have less air pollution. The ozone hole isn't a likely explanation for the much higher skin cancer rates we experience in the southern hemisphere. But excessive UV exposure is a major cause of skin cancer, so it's wise to cover up. Here we are on the 10th of January uh, and UV index is in the extreme range, whether you're in Hobart or Cairns, Albany or Kalinara, uh, across the country around the middle of the day, the UV index is going to be in the extreme, extreme, particularly on clear sky days. That's Terry Slevin from the Public Health Association of Australia ending that report by Alexandra Humphreys. The first ever satellite launch from Western Europe has failed to reach orbit with the UK Space Agency reporting what it called an anomaly. The rocket was carried under the wing of a modified jumbo jet, but the mission hit technical issues. Despite the setback, astrophysicists say it won't hold back European space ambitions nor plans to launch a similar mission from Australia in the near future. Gavin Coote reports. We are wheels off the ground. It was being hailed as a pioneering space launch for the United Kingdom. On this historic both European and UK mission uh, to open space for everyone. More than 2,000 spectators and dignitaries gathered in Cornwall and southwest England to watch a modified Boeing 747 carry a rocket and release it high over the Atlantic Ocean. It was carrying small satellites in what's known as a horizontal launch. And for a while, things appeared to be going smoothly. Then came word of a technical issue from Virgin Orbit's Christopher Ralph. Uh, it appears that Launcher 1 has suffered an anomaly which will prevent us from making orbit for this mission. Uh, we are looking at the information and data that we have uh, gotten. The carrier jet, known as Cosmic Girl, returned safely to base. It was the first time Virgin Orbit, part owned by British billionaire Richard Branson, had used modified 747s to launch satellites outside the company's base in the United States. Dr Brad Tucker is an astrophysicist with Australian National University. So Virgin Orbit is a, an interesting way of, of solving a perennial problem in space, and that is how do you cost-effectively get satellites up there? We have lots of 747s lying around that you know are slowly being retired, not used. What if we retrofitted that so that when the 747 went to its kind of cruising altitude, the rocket left from there? And by doing so, you would save a lot of fuel and costs. Britain's space industry is among the world's biggest, though usually it launches satellites from spaceports in other countries. 
and while it's unclear what went wrong with the UK launch, Dr Brad Tucker thinks it's likely they'll try another mission soon. The first launch from the US didn't reach orbit either. The following ones that they've had were all quite successful. So obviously a bit disappointing. It did get into space, but it just didn't reach orbit. Are they likely to give it another go from the UK, do you think? I think they're they're too invested to not give it another go. Both, I think, given that Richard Branson obviously having his UK ties, wanting to see that succeed, uh, but also how excited and invested all levels of the UK were, not just the UK Space Agency, but there was UK ministers on the launch program getting ready and excited as well. Virgin Orbit also has Australia in its sights, with plans to use Toowoomba Wellcamp Airport as another location for launching satellites within the next two years. Jonty Horner is Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Southern Queensland, based in Toowoomba. Now, I don't know whether the failure of the rocket in this launch today will delay things in Toowoomba. I suspect things will be working along in parallel. So it won't take them 12 months or 18 months to work out what went wrong today. And we'll probably see them continuing their endeavours elsewhere while they develop this capacity here in southeast Queensland. And that is really exciting. I mean, I live in a house that's probably about 10 k's north of where they'll be launching from. So it's kind of exciting for me to think that I could nip out of my house, look to the south and see an aircraft take off with a rocket on it from right in my own backyard. I think that's really exciting. Jonty Horner sees the failed mission in the UK as a setback rather than a body blow. You know, at the end of the day, anything that's been launched to space is very heavily insured. Let's say it's a bad thing for the companies involved. It's not the end of the world. They'll get the funds to rebuild them and launch them again at a future date. Virgin Orbit says it's hoping to return to the Cornish spaceport before the end of 2023. Gavin Coote reporting there. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can head to the PM webpage for all of our interviews and reports to share. You can also catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks so much for your company today. For now, though, from us, good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.